Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, November 10th, we are studying Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 15 to 28. The Lord gives Ezekiel another action prophecy, two sticks joined together to proclaim the Lord's reunion of his divided people into one kingdom under one king. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. Honored to study the Lord's word with you and, and the listeners today. Pastor Andrews, you have the second half of Ezekiel 37. We were saying yesterday with Pastor Ulmer at the first half of chapter 37, this was the text that everyone wanted, the text from Ezekiel that everyone knows, the dry bones. And, and as you and I were speaking before we, we got on air, sometimes we stop reading in verse 14, and we don't pick up the rest of the chapter, which you and I have the privilege of studying today. As we get ready to study maybe a less familiar section of Ezekiel, even though it's full of good news. What do we need to know about the prophet, his ministry, what he's been doing, what he's doing that helps us with these verses for today? Right. It's certainly an unknown section for many. As you mentioned with the dry bones, if, if we were to poll a random Christian on what they know about Ezekiel, maybe that's where they'd go. Um, that one shows up in our churches as we read together. Uh, you know, It shows up every year for the those on the one-year lectionary, and for those on the three-year lectionary, they get it two out of the three years. But the second part of the text, it doesn't appear. So Ezekiel, and just a, a quick context for those just jumping in to the, the series here, Ezekiel is the Lord's prophet that he has sent to the people of Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom, so God's people had split into two separate kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to Assyria for their sinfulness in 722 B.C., and now that fall is upon the southern kingdom as well. They have not been faith, faithful to the Lord, and so he's judging them by means of Babylon. And Ezekiel himself has actually already been, I don't know, judged is the right word. He's already been a part of that, though, as the, the first exiles have already been captured and taken away. Ezekiel is, is with that group, and he's been able to speak the Lord's word to those Jewish people already in Babylon. And so here he's he's getting to do that, and as you mentioned in the open, about the reuniting of the two kingdoms in our text today. Yeah, this is going to be one of those things. We've seen maybe hints of this in the book of Ezekiel and in other prophets. When we, when we speak in terms of biblical history and the divided kingdom— you know, Israel is the name that the northern kingdom goes by, and that's already been taken away by Assyria, as you mentioned. And then Judah is the name of the southern kingdom. And and sometimes, you know, you'll see how the word Israel particularly can function as only the northern kingdom or both kingdoms. And sometimes you'll get both in the same context. And we've seen that here and there in Ezekiel, but it's going to come through a lot more clearly. And and what a message of of hope 
for these exiles to know that, I mean, as, as we'll see in the text, it's not just a restoration for a small group there in Babylon that, that Ezekiel's preaching to, but this is a, a much wider ranging hope that the Lord is giving his people. And again, he's going to do it through an action prophecy. At least that's that's the way I think we should would talk about this one, Pastor Andrews. You can, you can tell me what you think, but it's been a while since we've seen Ezekiel do this, but there's often times where the Lord will give him something, an object, or you know whether it's part of his life or something he gets and, and makes something with it as a way of proclaiming. I think that's what we have going on here. It's been a while since we've seen it, but he's going to do something with a couple of sticks sounds kind of like a an object lesson or an action prophecy to me. I agree. I mean, it's humorous to me. I I didn't grow up as a pastor's kid. I know there are many pastors who did, but hearing from pastor's kids when they've grown up, they often say that it was like living in a fishbowl that everybody in the congregation was was watching them and they were they were expected to act and behave in certain ways. And as you read through Ezekiel, it starts to feel like that's true of him, that everybody in town, they, they had their eyes fixed on Ezekiel. And if Ezekiel does something that, that just doesn't look normal, if he does something that seems even slightly out of place, they're immediately saying, tell us what this means. And, and so we get that today in the action prophecy here. It seems so simple. All he does is pick up a couple of sticks and, and put them together. And the people are, again, they're asking, will you not tell us what you mean by these? As though they expect him to, like, leave them hanging. That's right. And and of of the action prophecies that Ezekiel's given to do, this one is rather tame. I think you, you and I, didn't we speak about Ezekiel having to lay on his side for a really long time and build a model of Jerusalem toward the beginning of this book? And now two sticks. This is going to be pretty tame. But the, the message that is proclaimed through this very simple action prophecy is going to be absolutely marvelous. So uh, I'm glad that we get a chance to read past verse 14 of chapter 37 this morning and to, to see the glorious treasure that God's word has for us in this text. So let's, let's read. We're in Ezekiel 37, beginning at verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him, and join them one to another in, to, into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph, that is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him. And I will join with it the stick of Judah and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. 
They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. That is our text for today. That's Ezekiel 37 verses 15 to 28. So, Pastor Andrews, we've got the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel, and he tells him, take one stick, write something on it, take another stick, write something on it. Let's talk about these sticks. What what should we picture Ezekiel doing here? That's a great question, and obviously there's not much more that we can say than what's been given to us, but we can take a look at the Hebrew words behind these things. I mean, um, the the word for stick here is actually regularly used in the Old Testament of a tree or uh, even wood that's going to be burned uh, for an offering or something of that sort, you know, wood for the fire. So normally refers to something probably bigger than what we think of when we think of a stick, or at least I think of. When I think of a stick, I'm thinking of the twigs in my backyard I got to pick up before I mow. Um, <laughs> this this eights or this stick here, it has to be small enough that Ezekiel can hold two of them in his hand in one hand, the way it sounds in the text here, but also large enough that he can write something on them or carve something into them, um, depending on what uh, we want to translate that word as from Hebrew too. So writing or carving, as you think of God writing on the, the tablets of stone to give us the Ten Commandments that was likely carved into the stone. Um, and we could have the same thing here with the, the sticks too, that these words are actually carved into the wood or written with ink of some sort, uh, as they did have papyrus to make scrolls at that time as well. I mean, I'm, I'm picturing in my mind, I suppose, something like the staff of Moses, and just because I know, you know he, that comes to mind, uh, you know, a walking stick, perhaps, that, as you said, big enough so that you can carve something on it, small enough so that it fits in, in one hand. So, so something like that. I want to, I think we can get to this later, but I'm just going to put it out there, that the fact that this is the same word for tree, and we've got you know a piece of wood that's uniting things. Like, I want to make connections to the cross, but but I maybe we'll save that. I, I think there's something there, but I want to I want to save that for a little bit. But I want to put it out there so we don't forget to come back to it. That's a beautiful Take us to, connection. <laughs> we'll we'll get there, but I just don't know how you can get around it from this because the word tree, as you said, you know, I mean that Hebrew word eights can function in, in a variety of ways. And because one of those ways, you know, is, is a tree on which you would hang something and think of all those connections the New Testament makes, and particularly how the cross reconciles, uh, I think this is a loaded text. And it's it's a shame that we don't read it along with the rest of Ezekiel 14. But but let's not put the cart before the horse. All right. Let's talk about, tell me about what's written. You've got one stick for Judah and one stick, and this is maybe a bit surprising, for Joseph rather than than Israel. So, so tell us about the, the writing on the two sticks. Sure. And so some of you are starting to think already, if he's got to carve these in with, you know, some kind of a, a tool, not power tool, that's going to be some work to carve <laughs> these sentences in. Well, in Hebrew, it's actually not that long. English is a little different. In Hebrew, those those phrases are only four words each, unless unless that what we have in, I guess we have it in parentheses, the stick of Ephraim, if that's actually not in parentheses and actually written on the stick, 
Uh, that would make the Hebrew there six words instead of four. But yeah, I mean, so the phrases are the representations of both kingdoms. The So you get the southern kingdom of Judah first, and the people of Israel. You had mentioned Israel sometimes used in reference to both kingdoms at the same time, and that's what we see in this text here. So Judah is Israel, Joseph is Israel, we'll come back to that. So the people associated with him. So not just the southern kingdom, but that would include anyone who's been sojourning and, and living among them. It would include converts that have come in and actually become a part of the people, been circumcised in order that they might join with the people of God in that place. So you've got the the association word there. And, and that's about all I guess we need to say of the southern kingdom. But then, yeah, you get Joseph as the reference and Ephraim as the reference for the northern kingdom. And we actually, I mean, we do see this sometimes elsewhere in Scripture. Zechariah chapter 10, verse 6 is going to use the phrase house of Judah and house of Joseph to speak in this same way. So what's behind the replacement? Well, I mean, if we look at Genesis 48 um, as Joseph's father, Jacob slash Israel is dying, he is going to give a blessing upon his grandsons. He blesses Joseph in the chapter as well, but he's going to bless Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph. Manasseh is firstborn. But interestingly, Jacob chooses to give the firstborn blessing not to Manasseh, but to Ephraim, which Joseph tries to correct, and Jacob says he knows what he's doing, uh, and, and Manasseh will become a nation of his own as well, but this, this Ephraim blessing is going to be greater. So that's one spot we could go um, to the, the blessing there, that idea upon well, who does, who does Jacob pass his blessing on to? He doesn't pass it on to his firstborn to Reuben, uh, but instead he passes it on through the line of Joseph. Uh, we could go to First Chronicles chapter 5, uh, verses 1 and 2, where we see that idea again of the, the idea of the blessing or the birthright, the, the promise of the Savior that would come from Adam's family tree that would come and has been passed down from generation to generation, and it'll go through Judah's offspring. But the birthright, so that went with the blessing, but the birthright of the firstborn goes through Joseph. And so you can see that in First Chronicles. Maybe we could talk about Ephraim politically at this time as well, um, as they had prominent place in the history of the northern kingdom when they first come into the promised land after wandering in the wilderness past the Exodus for 40 years, they cross over. And where did they set up the tabernacle? They set it up in Shiloh, which would be part of the land of Ephraim, part of his inheritance. And it stays there for close to 400 years, uh, probably more like 350 or so, before it's brought out into battle with the Philistines and, and captured by the Philistines, which gives us some fun Old Testament accounts, doesn't it, about the the, the right. statue of Dagon bowing down before it and all that stuff. Right, right, right. So, the, I mean, I think that that's a very helpful explanation as to why Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, is is written. Just as a maybe a brief review, because at least I, I know that in my own mind, sometimes this it's easy to take this history for granted. 
in terms of you know the divided kingdom here what what seems surprising at this moment is that Ephraim is mentioned at all because they've they've been long gone it's one thing to have a stick with Judah written on it i mean Ezekiel's living in just the the very brief aftermath of the downfall of of Judah but Ephraim's been gone for a while just give us a, can you give us just a brief rundown of how Israel became divided in the first place and then how they get to the point where Ezekiel is here so they become divided in the first place under, what would that be, their fourth king? So Saul is first. He's replaced by David, by God himself. And then it goes to David's son, Solomon. And then from Solomon, the kingdom is passed down to his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam, um, <laughs> Solomon writes Ecclesiastes for us and, and talks about how you never know whether the person coming after you is going to be wise or a fool and whether, what it will do with your stuff and turns out to be quite well said about his own son. Rehoboam yeah. loses the vast majority of the kingdom within just a couple of months in, in office. And so the, the kingdom splits because Rehoboam seeks to enforce even harsher work requirements on the people than his dad did. They came to him. They, they pleaded with the new king to lessen their load so that they would serve him forever. His father's advisors had told him to to listen and to do what the people wanted and they would serve him forever. But his young friends said, no, you're, you should make it stronger. Something about how my father's pinky is like, or my, my pinky is like my father's thigh or something like that. So yeah. the, the, the work is going to be that much greater that he would lay upon them. And they rebel and they side with a man named Jeroboam, very similar name. Uh, and Jeroboam breaks off and forms the Northern Kingdom at that point. So you've got then two separate kingdoms, which endures for over 200 years. Right. And until in 722, 721 BC, the Northern Kingdom is taken away by Assyria. And then about 150 years later, in 587, 586 BC, Judah is sent into exile by the Babylonian Empire, which is, is where we are now. And so you've got these two sticks, the names of the the two kingdoms written upon them. And in verse 17, Ezekiel is told, join them one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. Just curious, Pastor Andrews, and this may be a question that we, we can't say for certain. Are, are we to think that, that Ezekiel is holding these two sticks in one hand such that it looks like it's one stick, but it's really two? Or do you think maybe there's a miraculous joining together of two sticks into one. Do you, do you have a thought on that? That's a curious question. I'm, I'm trying to see if I can pull up the Hebrew there real quick and see what the, the word might be behind it. Because off the top of my head, I'm just envisioning him holding both sticks at the same time um, rather than actually physically making them attached to each other. But I suppose either is is available to us based on the, the phrasing in English. Um, well, the reason, and I just, it, just to, as, as you look, the reason that it, it comes to my mind is, is if it is, because I'm, I'm picturing this as a staff, and I think about the wonders that the Lord did through, say, the staff of Moses or the staff of Aaron, and, and how there were very physical signs or physical signs associated with that staff to see another staff, you know, not broken, but now reunited in a very literal way. 
would be a, a very, again, vivid image. Now, I mean, the same thing is communicated, even if the two sticks do remain literally separate. But I was, I was just curious if, if you had a thought about that if, or, or if there was anything direct in the text about it. So the Hebrew word here is, I guess, karev, um, which would be the idea of to bring them near to each other. Um, but that doesn't necessarily, okay. again, just as the English doesn't, it doesn't help us answer the question any at all. Um, Fair enough. As you bring two things near to each other, they can just be near each other, or you can actually bring them near to each other to the point where they connect and they, they become one. Um, I'm sure we could come up with the Lord doing that somewhere, somewhere else. Sure, sure. But to the, to the people who are looking, as Ezekiel holds them, even if they are separate, it, it appears as if the two sticks have become one, whether or not they literally became one doesn't negate what the Lord's going to do through this preaching. So you, you mentioned earlier, Pastor Andrews, that the people seem to have this idea of Ezekiel as when he does something, we got to pay attention because he, he's doing it for a reason. And we've seen that elsewhere in the book of Ezekiel. We see it again here in verse 18. And then the Lord gives Ezekiel what to proclaim. So as we go into verse 19, help us into how the Lord gives Ezekiel what to proclaim based upon these two sticks now made one in Ezekiel's hand. Sure. I don't want to skip over 18 that fast, though. I go mean, ahead. We we were joking about it before we went live here. Um, and just, it's like your pastor bringing something into the pulpit with him, and he holds it in his hand for most of the sermon, but he never mentions it. He never talks about it at all. And then so after church, how many people do you think are going to ask him why he was holding that thing in his hand? Um, these people as they've been watching Ezekiel and pointing stuff out, will you not tell us what you mean by these? So it's like Ezekiel's doing what God gave him to do. He's doing the action prophecy, but he's remaining silent. He's not actually sharing with them anything until that time comes when I guess they've asked to hear the word of the Lord from him, which is kind of neat to think about as well. Um, so yeah, Ezekiel... I guess they thought he was going to leave them hanging and not share with them. So he does. He shares what God gives him to share. And I don't know, one of the things that, that might stick out to us right away in the in the word he proclaims is, Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph. That's We think of about, and we think of something that's going to happen soon. You know, um, I'm about to go out to eat dinner doesn't mean I'm going to go out to eat dinner 15 years from now. It means I'll probably go out tonight or tomorrow or, or something like that. Almost the same as the idea of Jesus telling his disciples that he was coming soon. Um, God's timing different than ours. I'm not sure what year it is when Ezekiel says this, um, but he's he himself probably dies. I don't know. What would you say? The 560s? Something like that? 560s, 570s BC. The the Lutheran Study Bible suggests that Ezekiel's ministry ends about 570 BC. So, you know, it is it is I'm not I'm not sure what, what to make of this. It's interesting that once you get past, you know, the the section of judgment and then the oracles against the nations, and, and we're in this section now of Ezekiel where there is a lot more uh, talk of restoration and hope for the future, a lot of the the dating references tend to fade into the background. Now, when we get to chapter 40, we're going to hear about the 25th year of exile, which would have you know, been toward the end of Ezekiel's ministry. But a lot of these 
text about promises are not dated. And and granted, that doesn't mean, I mean, they, they certainly had a date, and we know it happens after the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC. But I wonder if, if some of that you know, lack of a specific time reference there is just a reminder that, and we're going to talk about, you know, the very literal fulfillment of these words in terms of the the bringing back of the people from Judah and from other other parts of, you know, all of Israel. But it's a reminder that there's going to be a an end times fulfillment for us as Christians still. Yeah. Hey, that was a long answer to your question. So about yeah. 570 BC. Yeah, I mean, so what is this, 20, 30, 40 years later? Because it's 538 right. BC when this is well, we can talk about twofold prophecy if you'd like here in a little bit, but it's 538 BC when the first possible fulfillment of this is going to come, when the Persian King Cyrus will conquer the Babylonians and he will take the the various tribes that he finds in that land and he will send them to their homes. So he does that with Judah as he sends the Jewish people back to Judah and Jerusalem and even helps to pay to rebuild their community and the temple. Um, so that's the that's the immediate fulfillment that we'd be looking forward to. But it's even at that, again, it's 30 years out probably. Um, And so when God says, I'm about to take this stick, many of the people hearing this probably won't see it happen. They won't be around to see these two kingdoms once again, reunited under one King. Well, and that would, that would include Ezekiel as we were saying, because you know, he, he dies in the five seventies or five sixties BC. So he too is, is one of those who hears the promise and believes it, but is is left without seeing it. I mean, thinking about the say the book of Hebrews, particularly chapter eleven, how so many of the Old Testament saints were were believing in the promise, but they never got to see it. And and then I mean that reminds me of of Jesus' words to his disciples that you know, blessed are your eyes that see and your ears that hear, because how many people longed to hear those things and to see those things. And and Ezekiel here with the word you know, about to, in the Lord's time, he does do this. And and there is more fulfillment, I think, than than just what happens under Cyrus. And I think we'll, we'll talk more about that, but we'll do it on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are looking at the second half of Ezekiel chapter 37 with Pastor Steve Andrews. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, November 10th. We are studying Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 15 to 28, with Pastor Steve Andrews of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we were looking at verse 19, talking about this reunion of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. 
in, in terms of what happens historically and what the people are led to expect or what they maybe not what they're led to expect but what they begin to expect based on these verses what what are they thinking as as the lord gives this promise it's a great question and we actually we learn about it as we go into the new testament era i mean we we can look at a chapter like mark chapter 10 and we can really as you read that whole chapter in one sitting rather than broken up over weeks as we did in church recently um you can see what the disciples have in mind. Uh, they, they favor that rich man, that ruler, because they think he can offer money and wealth to an army that can help overthrow Rome and take back the, the throne in Jerusalem for God's people. You can see how children don't have anything to offer that, or a blind man doesn't have anything to offer that. You can watch as James and John start, you know, asking Jesus for the the great places of honor when he comes into his glory. They're not thinking glory is in him lifted up upon a cross. They're thinking about him sitting on the Jerusalem throne, just as was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. So this idea of an earthly kingdom, it really does seem to come from a misunderstanding of these Old Testament prophecies. And this is, I, I think, answered best by Jesus himself speaking to Pilate, where he says, my kingdom is not of this world. There is a united kingdom coming. There is one king that's going to rule over God's people, but it's not going to be anything like what you expect it to be like. Right. It's going to be a kingdom that is not run according to the ways of this world, where the servants of that kingdom are fighting, but rather through the King Jesus who is crucified nailed to the cross, crowned with thorns there, reigning for the good of his people. So Pastor Andrews, as the, the text continues here in Ezekiel 37, in verse 21, there's, a I think, a, a pretty noticeable shift in language. We've talked about how the, the word Israel sometimes can refer only to the Northern Kingdom, sometimes to both kingdoms. And as, as we see the Lord talking about the reunion of these two, suddenly all you see is the people of Israel there in verse 21, as if it's already happened. Right. It gets right back to that idea again. They've been scattered. So northern kingdom was scattered. Southern kingdom is being scattered, depending on what year we are when Ezekiel is saying these specific words. And now they're being brought back from that scattering. They are being gathered from all over. And we know various places they've gone. Some went to Assyria, some went to Babylon. Others like Jeremiah, for example, went down to Egypt. Um, Jeremiah will not be brought back in this gathering because the Jews killed him in Egypt. They got sick of hearing God's word from him down there. So these these people are being gathered from all over, and that's not just the original inhabitants either. As we heard on the words carved into the sticks or written on the sticks, also the people associated with them. So others are being gathered together again too um, into this one new kingdom, which is great for us because we get to be those I guess you could say we get to be those others who are associated with Israel as the the Gentiles are brought into the church in this era. I, I mean, I think that's that's where this text has to take us. It, I mean, there's there's a, I think a multitude of ways we could misread this text, particularly as you know you go into verse twenty two. I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. One king shall be king over them all. There won't be two nations. They're not going to be divided anymore. I think the, the temptation, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned how this text seems to have been misread in Jesus' day. Texts like this, I think, are still misread in our day with some of the premillennial theology that's out there and, and expectations for something 
to happen quite literally over there along the Mediterranean coast in the nation state that's named Israel. There's expectations, but but tell us why those expectations aren't what this text is leading or what this text is promising, and then give us what the text actually is promising. Sure. I mean, yeah, some more of those expectations. It's really a weird mix because you've got the Jewish people that some of them have given up on a Messiah altogether, and some of them have made it a metaphor and all kinds of strange things. But there are people still waiting for the restoration of Israel among the Jews who expect that the temple will be rebuilt there, geographically speaking. Um, and so they have figured out the, the priesthood. So when the temple's rebuilt, they know who the high priest would be if that were done in this day. And they're, they're getting all their sacrifices ready. So they're ready to go if this happens. But the interesting thing is that it's not just them. As you mentioned, the premillennial Christians are doing it too. They, they expect that God will rebuild the temple geographically in Jerusalem. And so they're helping support and pay for a lot of this. I mean, it's like, it's just an odd alliance. Uh, of these things. And you can see how they get it from this text, but it's not where it's going. So how do we read this? Well, again, one nation, one king. Well, one nation, historically speaking, is actually true. Just they don't get to become their own like free nation. I mentioned earlier, Cyrus sends them home. When Cyrus sends them back to the place of Judah to rebuild, he doesn't give them like freedom to be their own nation again, they are part of Persia. And as Persia is then conquered by Alexander the Great, now they're part of the the Macedonian Empire. And as that empire crumbles and eventually falls to Rome, that's why when we get to the New Testament era, they are part of the Roman Empire. And so you've got Cyrus, and Darius, and Xerxes, and Artaxerxes, and that's about the extent to my knowledge of that empire. You've got Alexander the Great, you've got the the emperors of Rome like Julius Caesar that so many know well from their school days. All of those have technically been that one king that rules over this geographic location, in fairness, but there's more to this. As I, I mentioned before, the idea of twofold prophecy in the Old Testament, something that for those who haven't heard that idea before, an Old Testament prophecy, and this is going to be one of them, will oftentimes have some sort of fulfillment in the immediate or the, the near future, but that it will be even greater fulfilled in Jesus Christ for all of his people in his time. And so I mentioned the Second Samuel 7 promise that was given to King David, that one of his descendants would sit on his throne in Jerusalem forever. Well, that seems to have been broken when Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple torn down and everything's carried into Babylon. But that, that promise is fulfilled in Jesus, just as this promise is ultimately going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Um, so there's some great New Testament verses that connect to this here as we think of one king who's going to be over them. John chapter 10, that Jesus is, as he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock one shepherd. That last line is what I was getting at connecting to the text here. One flock, one people, one nation, 
with one king, one ruler, one, one shepherd over them. Um, we had the connection with the gathering from all the scattered nations from before. Jesus in Luke 13 said that people will come from east and west, from north and south. They will recline at table in the kingdom of God. Or Peter himself uh, in 1 Peter 2 will actually call us a nation, as in the church today. This is probably the connection maybe more directly to what you were asking. So long answer to your short question too, right? Um, the, the idea of, okay, who's this? What is this one nation that's Israel? We talk about it as the, as the church today, the New Testament, that, that Israel is no longer a geographic location, but it is a spiritual church. You, listener, as a Christian who believes in Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin, death, and the devil, you are a member of Israel. You are a part of that family, that house. So Peter says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his most marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So as you were mentioning, let's get to the cross earlier in the show, but you wanted to hold off on it. I mean, I think that's where we're going here. This is our king. This yeah. is our one united nation. That's right. Yeah, that this is exactly where I think the text has to lead us. And the I mean the the New Testament text that you brought to bear are fantastic. The one that my mind went to simply because of the way Ezekiel has this image of the two sticks becoming one is in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul is talking about, you know, the one church that is made both from Jews and Gentiles who all believe in Christ. It in Ephesians 2:14 he starts for he himself, so for Christ Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And, and here's the part where I think the imagery from Ezekiel comes in. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I mean, there you have the two people reconciled. How? through the cross, through these two sticks made one. And I, yeah, as, as we were talking here, Pastor Andrews, I can't, I mean, I think the text in Ezekiel 37 leads, I mean, the way, I can't help but picture it any other way than Ezekiel holding the, the two sticks end to end. And yet I kind of wonder, what if he held them crosswise? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think, I think the picture is two, two sticks joined together end to end so that it becomes one long staff. But maybe... I don't know. You know, I, I think you could get a, a really cool piece of art like that with, with Ezekiel as a prophet holding the two sticks, making them one in the shape of a cross rather than a long staff. That, that might be going a little too far. I might be taking too much homiletical license there, but could be, but we like don't it. know. I, we don't, we don't know either way um, how that played out. So I, it's as good as any. And maybe, it has, maybe. It has, yeah. That's the beautiful connection to, to the cross of Christ, as you were mentioning. Yeah, yeah, we'll 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 take maybe the, the how Ezekiel's holding the sticks with a grain of salt, but I man, I would sure I'll I'll ask him in eternity. Well, maybe we'll get a, a picture then. So let's let's keep moving here in the in the text, Pastor Andrews. In in verse twenty three, they'll not defile themselves anymore with their idols or their detestable things, which is oh man, that's a great promise because we know 
I mean, we've had some really graphic texts in the book of Ezekiel that have told us at length just how bad the idolatry was, both for Judah and Israel. Take us, take us into the promise that's made there in 23. Yeah, it's 23 and following here that really help us see that we should not be focused on Cyrus and 538 BC. Um, because as we hear these words spoken, and this is a good thing, right? They shall not defile themselves anymore with idols and detestable things, nor any of their transgressions. That would be remarkable. That would be wondrous. How do they do in 538 when they get to go home? Are they suddenly not idolatrous anymore? <laughs> not, not that we know, right? right. Uh, and they, they are, and they, they are still plagued by transgressions. In fact, oh, um, which of the prophets is it? Is it Haggai that has to get on them because they didn't rebuild God's house? They left it in rubble when they were too busy rebuilding their own houses. And there's an idol right there. So there is a short-term, limited amount of fulfillment to this, that they do get to go home. They do get to do these things. Um, they do get to be that one kingdom under a foreign king, but in paradise, with Jesus Christ as our king over us, there's an, an even greater fulfillment where this is not going to be, well, sorry, where this is going to be completely true of us, that we will have been rescued from, well, backsliding into sin, as the text here says. We will be pulled away from all of our idols. They will be gone, and we will trust in God himself alone, and that's I, we we see that that idea here in these these several verses. It, it's just going to keep going as we move forward, right? And let's let's not skip over that very last phrase there in verse twenty three. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. That's a, a phrase we hear often in the prophets. What's what's the import of that phrase? Yeah, I mean it's restoration language, right? Um, I used to think that this was covenant language, and I guess in a way it kind of is. That's the basis of what a covenant between God and man looks like. But this is what God's work of saving us does. It's what it did when he saved them from Egypt and brought them into the promised land to be his holy nation, his people. It's what it did when he brought them back from their time in exile to be once again his people and rebuild a temple so he could dwell there in their midst. It's the hope that we have, that we failed of old, but it's the hope that we have now renewed in Christ. And again, so they shall be my people, I will be their God. This is true of us in paradise forever. I mean, I sin today, but the day is coming when I will sin no more, where I will no longer have idols in my life that I trust instead of God, where I will be his person, we will be his people, and we get to be his forever uh, in this, again, restoration language that that is. In verse 24, we have mention of the servant David being king and one shepherd. It sounds like a callback to some of the language you heard back in Ezekiel chapter 34. What's the promise there in, in Ezekiel 37, 24? Yeah, so I think those are the two primary spots where we see this servant David referent coming up. So David's going to be king over them. Well, that's an interesting promise. David's dead, right? I mean, Peter Peter preaches this on Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, he says, uh, we know that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. So who is this? I think it was a psalm that he was referencing at that time, but who is this referring to? So who is this David? Not the Not the son of Jesse. This is going to be that 
promised Messiah from 2 Samuel chapter 7, the son of David who would sit on the throne in Jerusalem. And we know, as Christians who get to look back on history, we know that this is Jesus who has fulfilled this promise for us. He is that servant David that is king over us. He is that one shepherd that we get to follow. What, what's the connection between kings and shepherds, and, and how does Jesus fulfill it all? They both lead. I mean, you think of the, the king, his job is to care for his people that are under his, his kingdom. The shepherd is to care for the sheep that are his flock. And so we would talk about guiding and leading and protecting and, and providing. The, the shepherd does all of that. He guides them. I mean, we could go Psalm 23 on that, right? Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me beside still waters, restoreth my soul, all those sorts of things. So Jesus does that for us. He protects us from the evil one. Something about flaming darts and the shield of faith um, from Ephesians. So we get all of that from the Lord. He does these good things for us as our good shepherd. In, in verse 25, there's the promise of dwelling in the land, and we've talked a little bit about misunderstandings. This is another one that seems ripe for misunderstanding. What's the, what's the proper understanding of dwelling in the land and how this promise is fulfilled for us today? Right. So they shall dwell in the land I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They're going to think of the promised land. They're going to think of that area west of the Jordan River. Um, and again, they get to go there. This is where God led Abram from the east, far east where Abram came from. And they dwell there from the 1406 time until the exile. Uh, they get to go home. They get to go to that. But ultimately for us, we see we see this as not a geographical place, but that promise of a paradise. It's really a neat way to think of the New Testament, too, to connect the old and the new. So you've got the promised land of the Old Testament that is geographic Israel. You've got the promised land of the New Testament as, as paradise, the restored Garden of Eden, perhaps. We could use that kind of language. As the text continues, the language does become so I think exalted, maybe I'm not sure that's the right word, but an, an eschatological end times focused. I mean, you, you start to read the language here and you just can't help but think of things beyond 538 BC, because as you've said, what happens in 538 BC under Cyrus and the return that's begun then, while certainly is a great thing, it just doesn't reach the heights that is described here. So the covenant of peace, that's an everlasting covenant the Lord's dwelling place being with them. I mean, how how do we see these things in 538 B.C., if we can see them, but more fully in Christ our Lord? I don't know of a covenant in 538 B.C., do you? Not that I'm aware of, other I, than, I mean, you know, Cyrus makes this decree, uh, but that's not really a covenant per se. Yeah, I mean, a covenant, as we think of it in Scripture and even in, in most of history uh, for different cultures and people groups in time um, to make a covenant you cut it like you shed blood you sacrifice animals in order to create a pact between two groups that is well bound by death uh, if if someone breaks it they die so that the god is going to make a covenant of peace with his people as you hear that it has to be made in blood I, i'm i'm hoping the listener goes to the to the New Testament, to the cross, to Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, 
where Jesus gives that new covenant to his disciples, to his people, that is made in his own blood. Jesus cuts, uh, in a sense, he cuts himself to be the sacrifice of the new covenant by his shedding of the blood on the cross. And that's our peace, right? It reconciles us to God himself. Um, not peace as in quiet or stillness, but as in a, a cease of war, an end to to rebellion. Our sinful rebellion has been put to an end. We have been reconciled to God. And and so again, you can see even in that language, as, as Lutherans, we like to talk about the now and the not yet. We are reconciled to God now, but our rebellion still kind of goes, doesn't it? And so there's that not yet part, um, that the the peace that we have with the Lord is going to be all the more so when we're actually with him in paradise and that, that sinful rebellion is truly removed fully from us for all time. Tell us a little bit more about the dwelling place of God being with them in verse 27. That's a nice phrase. Uh, we, we think of the dwelling place and you get the idea of John chapter 1, verse 14, that God dwells with us. We have, I mean, I guess you've got the Isaiah 7, the Old Testament prophecy about how God um, God would be, he would give us the, the Savior and he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so we have God with us as such a prominent feature in the whole Old Testament, whether it's the garden as he walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, if it's the the tabernacle, the temple, however. But now in John chapter 1, we see these words. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus tabernacling with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus actually came into his creation, takes on flesh to to dwell with us. It's an incredible, I mean, that's got to be one of the things about our faith, about the Christian faith that stands out so distinctly from any other faith in this world. And and again, that God's dwelling place would be with them. You know, you have the rebuilding of the temple that does happen eventually after they go back into the land. It doesn't happen immediately. And you mentioned the prophet Haggai having to, to get on the people for that. But again, when you, you think about that temple and what it was, I mean, you even have people who, who see that temple and had known the first one under Solomon, and they're weeping because it just wasn't the same. But I mean, no matter how grand the building was, the, the dwelling place of God being with his people was never just about a building, and it was never only about a building or primarily about a building. It's always about the Lord being present there. And as you, you've said, it's, it's pointing us to Jesus, who is God dwelling with us in our flesh, and then, I mean, I think, you know, we have to take that and, and run all the way to the book of Revelation, where, you know, what makes the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth so great? It's the fact that that is the place where God dwells with his people in the fullness of, I mean, in, in all of its fullness, not even just a, a return to Eden, but Eden now surpassed there in eternity. I mean, I think that's where the, the dwelling place being with them, that's the the fullness of it that we'll get to experience Again, in eternity, even as now God is with us still, word, sacraments, but looking forward to that full and final fulfillment when Christ returns, what what joy will be ours then? Indeed. I don't think we want to skip over the idea of what some of the New Testament says either about how God dwells in us now. Um, sure. Like, like 
Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 3 that, that we are God's temple and the Holy Spirit dwells in us or other places where we see Christ dwells in us. Um, that's typically Paul's language, I think, in the different places you'd see it in the New Testament. Right. That's, that's certainly a, a very important reminder of the way that we see God. This is one of those, those themes that you can see if you trace it throughout the scriptures of God dwelling with his people and the ways that he, he does that from the Garden of Eden into you know, the tabernacle, the temple, in the flesh of Jesus Christ, now in his church, in his Christians, ultimately on the last day in the, in the fullness there in eternity. It's just a, a beautiful theme that Ezekiel's picking up here in, in chapter 37. Pastor Andrews, we've got about two minutes left on the morning. At verse 28 is the conclusion of our text today. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Help us into that verse, and through that verse, help us to wrap this text up and, and help us to see our Savior Jesus Christ here in this last part of Ezekiel 37. Gladly. Uh, so this has actually been a major theme here in the book of Ezekiel, really throughout the book, that the nations will know. And, and it's typically been connected to God's judgment. So he's going to judge one people group, or he's going to judge a different people group, and he's going to bring an end to them, but he spares all the people around them in hopes that those people around see the judgment, they fear the Lord, and in so doing, they repent of their wicked ways and live. And so we've seen that so often, but now we actually see it reversed. The nations are going to know he's the Lord, not because of judgment, but because of his restoration, when he actually puts himself into the midst of the people forevermore. God with us is going to be a thing that shares to the nations who he is how wondrous he is. It's it's neat to see that overturned here in this. As you mentioned earlier, we've gotten past the bulk of the judgment stuff and into the restoration stuff. So it's great to see. So, And ultimately in Christ, this is all the greater because I'm a Gentile. Most of the listeners are probably Gentiles. And we have been brought into the church from every nation as we think of the, the people of God having been scattered throughout creation, and yet the, the word of God has been shared by our, well, our, our, our fathers before us um, who have, have gone into different lands, who have preached the gospel, who have brought that good news of Christ to us all. And so we, we know that God now dwells with us. That sanctuary, my sanctuary is in their midst forever. We have that now, in the, in the near term for us, with, as you said, word and sacrament, and we have it all the more, as even the, the Lord's Supper itself is as the greatest gift that there is probably in, in creation. It's just a foreshadowing, when you think about it, of the, the feast of the, the, the Lamb and his kingdom that knows no end. And so we'll get to dwell with Christ in the paradise that he is preparing for us, where he will be one king, over one nation forevermore. Pastor Steve Andrews is pastor at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lees Summit, Missouri, helping us today with Ezekiel 37, verses 15 to 28. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. An honor. Blessings to you, brother. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Ezekiel or comments on the series, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>